on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Jeff Kapersky about Thomistic metaphysics and physics and their potential problems. So we cover all sorts of things like what in the world do we mean when we talk about Thomistic metaphysics or physics? What are its central commitments? What are the key aspects of Thomistic physics and metaphysics that Dr. Kapersky finds problematic and why? What metaphysical shifts needed to occur in order for modern science and the scientific revolution to take off? And are these necessarily at odds with a more standard Thomistic approach to thinking about metaphysics and physics? What does he make of more modern renditions of things like neo-Aristotelian metaphysics? Do these kinds of views face the same sort of problems that he thinks traditional Thomism has? How does causal powers and teleology fit into a more modern concept of physics and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we think about serious thinking, we have tried to encapsulate some of those things, uh, what we mean by serious thinking, and a couple of intellectual virtues, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. When we say curiosity, we don't mean the vain and negative sort of vice of curiosity where you're interested in the wrong sort of things and you're getting yourself into trouble. The classical sort of what example is, you know, curiosity killed the cat. We mean that disposition of interest in other people, interest in important ideas that uh, drives us and motivates us to think deeply about stuff that matters. Uh, so I'm excited about this episode that you're going to hear today because we have Dr. Jeff Kapersky with us. Now, Jeff has been with us in the past. So if you're a new listener, uh, you should probably go find his old episode. We talked a lot about sort of physics and theism and, and the laws of nature. Uh, I think it was a fascinating episode. And I think Jeff is doing some cutting edge work in this area. And part of that, I mean, I just, I think there's not a lot of physicists uh, who know that sort of aspect plus the theology and philosophy aspect. So Jeff is sort of a unique um, person out there who's doing a lot of work intersecting these two things. And I think it's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff. And today we're going to be talking about the hot topic of Thomistic metaphysics and its physics. And if it is consistent with contemporary understandings of physics, can we put these things together and questions related to that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I also have my friend Matt Materos with me, who's finishing up an MA in philosophy at Biola, and he did a bachelor's in physics-related things. He can explain that if we if we get there. So he, he's, he's smarter than me on the physics end. Uh, I'm not as nearly as smart, but I'm interested in these questions because I think they're, they're relevant and interesting, and they seem to continue to come up, uh, at least in the internet world, evangelical, where Thomism is now all the rage. So this will be a lot of fun. So Jeff, before we get started, give me a little bit of a background to who you are, where you're at, and maybe what was it that drew you to thinking about the intersection of physics and philosophy of religion and, and related topics? Okay, thanks, Jordan. I'm happy to be back. Um, so I'm a philosopher of science. Uh, I got my PhD from Ohio State, and most of my early work was on something called chaos theory, which was really big at the time. Before that, I got a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. I took exactly one course in philosophy as an undergraduate and decided I'd had enough. 
Uh, but then J.P. Moreland recruited me back into philosophy, although I, I didn't know that was what was happening at the time. That's exactly what was happening at the time. Uh, and I've been teaching at, at Saginaw Valley State University in Michigan for, for 25 years. Most of my work now is along the, the intersection of philosophy of science and philosophy of religion. Um, I've always had interests in both. Again, most of my, my earliest work was really straightforward philosophy of physics. Uh, but very early on, it was um, John Polkinghorne, who was a well-known particle physicist in the 60s, became an Anglican priest that, uh, that also did some recruiting and, and got me interested in these, uh, these science and religion issues, especially it, where the philosophy of physics is involved. Very cool. And tell me, you went to Ohio State. Now you teach in Michigan. Do you have any allegiances? But <laughs> as in football, <laughs> yeah, as in, <laughs> uh, yeah, there might be, there might be some allegiances there. I actually have uh, my oldest son is finishing uh, his PhD at, at Ohio state. So yeah, um, we're, we're, we're okay with uh, rooting for the number two uh, team in the country this year. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, let's go ahead and dig into the topic. Uh, let's just start baseline. You know, when we talk about Thomistic metaphysics, what is that? And is that different than if we were to talk about Thomistic physics? Should we think of these things differently? Are they the same sort of thing? What are the central sort of commitments that are going on with that? Okay, good. So today we, we think it's a, a pretty clear distinction, right? So physics, if you want to study physics, you go to one department. You want to talk about metaphysics, you're going to go to a, a different department. And, and the physicists are going to insist they're just they're not doing metaphysics or really any sort of philosophy at all. Now, I think they're wrong. I think it's clear that, that physics can't get off the ground with at least a handful of metaphysical assumptions. But it, in the ancient and medieval worlds, there was much less of a distinction. So what, what they meant by physics is not what we have in mind. So physics was not a discipline that you could go and study. In fact, the words, the very words, English words, scientist and physicist, they weren't even coined until the 19th century. So actually, the, the question itself is a, a little anachronistic. It makes perfectly good sense to us to ask about the difference between physics and metaphysics. But for the medievals, there was, there's a lot more overlap. So let, let me give you an example. Here, here, here's what I mean. So um, here here's, seems like a good question. Why do, why do rocks fall? Right? Every time I you know, pick up a rock, it falls. And that sounds like physics, right? Uh, and all of your listeners are, are going to say, well, well, gravity, we know the answer. But Aquinas was a, an Aristotelian. Aristotelians did not believe in gravity. They did, they did not believe in forces that act on objects to, to make them move. So instead, they thought that rocks and, and other, other objects uh, are, in a sense, trying to get to the center of the earth. So downward motion, that's just what they do according to their nature. It's, it's part of what, is, what it is to be a rock. And the only reason they stop is because something gets in their way, you know, the floor of my office or, or the ground outside. Similar story for fire. Fire always rises because, in a sense, it, it wants to get back to its natural realm in, in the heavens. So that's, that's what it does. It, it rises. Nothing pushes the flames upward. It's just part of what fire does according to its nature. So overall, nature was thought to be highly teleological. Every object has an end or a goal, something that's naturally striving toward. Okay, so now you know why Thomas thought um, rocks fall. Can you tell me, um, or Matt, can you tell me what part of that explanation was physics and what part was metaphysics? Because, because I can't. I, I think it's all kind of in there together. Maybe a medieval scholar could, could, could separate them better, but it just seems like it, there's a much more, you know, integrated, uh, you know, overlap between the two. 
Yeah. I, so I, I definitely agree. I mean, there's, there's, there's clear, there's clear overlap. I think, I think one question, one question I have on this note is uh, it seems like Aristotle and Aquinas did at least retain some distinction, right. In that. Um, I mean, I think Aristotle thinks of physics as kind of the studying the principles that explain the motion of the thing. Right. Uh, the, the study of being as mobile, whereas metaphysics for him is the study of being as being or just things insofar as they are. And I, I think you're right. It seems like you're right. There's going to be clear overlap there. But I, I'm just wondering, um, do, you, do you still think there is a distinction, but it's just more blurry for them? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to, want to try to collapse the two. It's just yeah. that you know, the, when you ask that question um, and, and me, I'm kind of I'm a philosopher of science. I'm, I'm not a I'm not a medieval scholar. Um, uh, it's just very hard for me when when I read that literature and read the explanations to pull those apart and say, ah, yes, clearly this goes in the physics bu- bucket and this goes in the metaphysics bucket because yeah, it's you know in any explanation it just seems like I'm doing a lot of metaphysics to answer your physics question. Yeah, that makes sense, and I, I love these sort of conversations. Um, one of the cool things that I was a part of at Southeastern Seminary last year, we had this reading group. And we had all sorts of different people in the room. We had philosophers, we had theologians, we had physicists, we had uh, molecular biologists in the room. And it was fascinating as we're reading a metaphysics textbook on human persons, the different stuff that we're learning and being able to push each other in. So I I think asking these sort of questions is, is really helpful. So one question that I have is in your mind, what are the problematic areas of the Thomistic or Arist- Aristotelian sort of physics or metaphysics, however we want to parse it out, um, if we want to parse it out? What's what's wrong with them? What's outdated with them? What could we say and point to? Clearly, this is false. Uh, that is just not how things work. Well, mainly it's the things that, that conflict with modern science. And let me say, it's not just things that, that I find problematic. The, the early moderns like Descartes, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, they all intentionally rejected Thomism. So this wasn't just a kind of, you know, matter of a conceptual drift, you know, o- over time. So let me give you a few examples. Um, the, the, the most obvious conflict in the 17th century was over geocentrism. Now that's not, that wasn't unique to Aquinas. Aquinas was a geocentrist, but you know, no one before Copernicus thought, almost no one thought that the earth was going around the sun. Um, the reason I put it on the list, though, is that it was mainly the Thomists in the universities who opposed Galileo. So you hear about the Galileo affair as being about science versus religion. It was really more a matter of modern science versus medieval metaphysics. And the Thomists were, were on the wrong side. They, they were the ones who were holding things back. Um, closely related to that, then, is the idea of a strict separation between the, t- the terrestrial realm and the celestial realm. So the terrestrial realm, that, that's where we live. It was thought to be the, the realm of change and decay. So you build a wall, but the, the wall crumbles over time. You plant a tree, eventually it dies and, and it rots. But the, the celestial realm was considered perfect and unchanging. They, they thought celestial bodies are immutable, no change, no decay. So the two realms operate under a completely different set of principles. Now, in contrast, the early moderns believed in something we called the uniformity of nature. There's one set of laws that governs both the heavens and the earth. So from the smallest bits of matter to the farthest stars, one set of laws. And Newton argued that God's omnipresence ensures that the laws are the same everywhere. That's one aspect of uniformity. 
Descartes believed that God's omniscience ensures that God will never have a reason to change his mind. So the laws are the same everywhere and for all time. Um, but for Aquinas, the, the notion of uniformity of nature, it just would have made no sense whatsoever. Again, the two realms are, are just completely different. So one more example. Today, a good explanation in physics involves the laws of nature. But instead, Aquinas appealed to Aristotle's four causes. Uh, he thought that every event has a, a formal cause, a final cause, a material cause, and an efficient cause. So real quickly, the formal cause has to do with the, the essence of a thing. And an essence for Aristotle combines with matter to make a thing what it is. So horses have one kind of essence, dandelions have something else, but, but each thing has one. A final cause is, is a thing's purpose or goal, like, like that rock example, trying to get to the center of the earth. The material cause is just the stuff something is made of, and efficient causes are the things that, that move stuff along. The reason that's so unfamiliar is because science has largely given up on all that. From a modern point of view, only efficient causes count as, as causes. So my, my wedding ring is made of gold, but we wouldn't call the gold a cause of the ring. And there are no final causes in, in physics. Animals have purposes and goals, but inanimate objects just do not. So what, what it is to, to be a scientific explanation has changed. So there, there are more examples. We'll, we'll probably get into more as, as we move along, but I think that's enough to now for now to answer the question. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I guess, and we covered this in the last time we talked, I think, about where I don't think you would be necessarily against the the general idea of what's being said in something like a final cause it's just that's not a cause in the way we think of what a cause is right yeah um if you want to try to rehabilitate some of those ideas um then you might be able to instead of instead of referring to them as causes maybe explanations you're asking different sorts you know of questions and getting different kinds of explanations um and so yeah um Material. I mean, sure, we always want to know what, what something is made out of. We just don't call it a material cause. Um, final causes, you know, it, I just think that concept just works a lot better if we're talking about living organisms, right? Um, you know, plants have roots and they, they strive to, you know, get moisture and nutrients and, and the like. Formal causes, again, I'm not, I'm not an Aristotelian. So if we're talking about, if you have to believe in Aristotelian essences to believe in a formal cause, then yeah, I'm not, I'm not so big on that one. Um, uh, I just don't, don't think there are such things. Yeah. And I know you, I think you've explained how part of what was necessary for the scientific revolution to take off was a rejection of certain, I guess, Aristotelian sort of concepts of nature what in your mind are those specific things that need to be rejected in order for modern science to actually come to fruition? Good. So first, they had to get rid of the distinction between uh, natural and violent motion. So take that falling rock again. It, it falls because that's what it does according to it, its nature or essence. And that sort of motion is called natural motion. But I could take the rock, I could put it on my desk, and I could move it sideways with my hand. But that's not natural motion. That's that's not what the rock wants to do. How do we know? Because when I drop a rock, it keeps going until something gets in its way. But when I push the rock horizontally, it stops as soon as I, I take my hand away. And that horizontal motion was called violent motion. I, I can force the rock to move that way, but it goes against its nature. So when Descartes and Newton rejected 
Aristotelian ideas, they rejected this distinction between natural and violent motion. Okay, why was that important? Because most experiments involve violent motions. We're, we're putting objects in unnatural situations. But according to Aristotle, you can't learn anything from violent motion. Natural motion is all that's important. And this is why the medievals didn't do many experiments. They believed that artificial experiments were, were basically useless because, again, it involves violent motion. But once, once the early moderns rejected Aristotelian essences, this idea of, of violent motion just went along with it. They just didn't believe in, in, in violent motion, which then allowed for experimentation in science. We, we really could learn about God's laws by way of experiments. So this was another way in which Aristotelian Thomism hindered the rise of, of modern science. It really, in some ways, had a, had, a, had a strong conceptual reason why we shouldn't be doing experiments. Okay, so here's, here's the common thread pretty much to everything I've said so far. Most early moderns believe that God ordained the laws of nature. That's what's responsible for order in nature, not essences. Newton and Boyle didn't think that God needed essences, really anything else. For God didn't need such things to govern the universe. God doesn't need intermediaries to govern on, on his behalf. And, and that change then helped to launch modern science because, of course, you, know, you can't get very far in, in physics or chemistry without bumping into a law of nature like Newton's laws of motion. But for Aquinas, there was no such thing as a law of nature. Now, I want to emphasize this. This was not just kind of a, a philosophical dispute, you know, in the academy, something very theoretical. This, this had direct consequences for science itself. So here's the overall picture. God ordains the laws of nature, but he doesn't tell us what they are. He, he does give us the ability to, to discover those laws. So as Kepler put it, the, really what's going on in science is we're, we're, we're trying to think God's thoughts after him. But, but here's the important part. We have to do the work. God has not revealed the law. So we have to go out. We have to make observations and do the experiments to discover what laws God has ordained. So the really cool thing about this is that, that empiricism, empiricism itself is not something that emerged from naturalistic science. Empiricism had a theological motivation. But you only get there once Thomism is pushed out of the way. So I, th I think one, just as a maybe connecting with your, your last comment there, um, in what sense do you think the rejection of Thomism was necessary? I mean, was it just practically necessary insofar as another, uh, you know, another system of thought made scientific thinking more, more plausible or easier or just more natural on that view? Or was it actually, is there actually something about the Aristotelian Thomistic system that, that is... Uh, indirect conflict at the level of the fundamental principles with that kind of thinking. I think I think the one I started with here in this in this after Jordan's last question, this natural and violent motion, this was clearly an, an impediment, right? Because we think of modern science as being really it, it, it's highly. You know, we, we even talk about in physics there are there are theoreticians and then there are experimentalists, right? That that's what they do. But again, if you've got if you've got a philosophical view. That tells you experiments are worthless. They do not give you knowledge of the natural world. And if anything, they will mislead you. Um, that, from a modern point of view, it is really bad. Uh, that is something that that definitely had to go. And I also think 
again, this, um, the earlier one, that the, the separation between the terrestrial and celestial realms, if you're going to do something like celestial mechanics, right, if you're going to have, you're going to try to describe the, if you're going to come up with Kepler's laws for planetary motion. And then Newton later, you know, who, who gives you a fuller explanation of Kepler. Yeah. I mean, some of this stuff just has to go there. There's no way of, of including it in, in modern science. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think then the question for me is, um, is this, is this uh, Thomistic package really so tightly, you know, interdependent that you couldn't, you couldn't chop off some bits of it and retain, say, the more, the more fundamental general principles, like the, the idea that, uh, I, I mean, actuality and potentiality are real principles in nature and that uh, substances are hylomorphic and ordered towards ends, but just say that, say, Thomas got wrong um, exactly how those substances were ordered or what substances there were. In other words, at the level of like the filling out that more general sketch, Aquinas got things wrong, but nonetheless, you could you could still maybe retain the more general system in some way. Is that possible? I think it works better once you get out of the realm of, of physics, especially fundamental physics. As we start climbing up, you know, the, the hierarchy of the special sciences. That's if there's a place, if there's a place for Thomism and the notion of substance and the like. Uh, that's where I think it's going to be. Um, so, so if we're talking about things like emergence and the like, that's when I when I've heard Thomas give talks. Um, you know, Rob Coons gave an interesting talk a few years ago that I was at, where I was like, okay, you know, that's that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, that 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 could be something that yeah. I, I, Go run with that. You know, I, I'm not I'm not trying. I'm not trying to kill off the program. Uh, maybe there's some stuff that we can use. But if we're getting down to the ground floor, if we're talking about fundamental physics, um, yeah, I think it's. I think it's. Um, there's just not a whole lot there that I find useful. Hmm. So is is that a distinction between there's not a lot there that's useful and, but there is a way that potentially, say, a neo Aristotelian account could rehab it in a way that is still broadly Aristotelian or Thomistic, but is consistent with what we take to be modern science. Yeah. Like I said, if we, if we get, if we get out of the realm of, uh, of physics, then yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's possible. Uh, Cause again, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pluralist about metaphysics. So, you know, let, let a thousand flowers bloom and, and, and all that, because you never know what, what might be useful in, in the future. So it, it, and again, here are the, the things I like about it. Um, again, it's uh, Aristotelianism, Neo-Thomanism. It's, it's anti-reductionist. I, I think, I think that's good. Not all truths can be reduced to, to fundamental physics. Um, but Overall, yeah, I'm just I'm just not all that interested. In my view, Thomism had its day in the sun, and then it and then it failed. So I'm wondering why why we would want to go back. Um, so, yeah, if you get rid of some stuff, um, sure. Um, no one's and and, and that's it, it, modern day. Neotomists, they have gotten rid of some stuff. No one's defending geocentrism. You know, no one's trying to to bring back this distinction between natural and violent motion. So they've yeah, they've, they've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, why I'm not sure exactly why that's okay. I mean, how many failures does a research program have to have before we before we give it up? Right. So, you know, it's it's failed. It's it's clearly had some failures. And then when it does fail. If we can just if we say, well, we just we'll just cut loose those bad parts and then move on, like nothing has happened. You know, if the, if Thomism were the only game in town, like you know, this is this is all we've got, then we really wouldn't have any choice but to just keep patching it up and try to try to make it useful somehow. But but 
it's it's not the only game in town. I don't even think it's the best game in town. Hmm. Now, Matt, Matt, you can jump in on this one. I, as I think about it, so I'm not a physicist. Just you know, I don't I don't know all the details in there. So you guys can correct me in these things. But as I think about it. Um, there are certain aspects of what I've read as like neo-Aristotelianism that I want to like keep. So like the idea of a telos and objects. So I, I think of somebody like Thomas Nagel's, uh, you know, account of bringing back this idea of these ends for, for, for things that we're all moving towards that. And for me, I'm like, I don't know if I had need to have all the physics worked out. I just have this broad idea that yes, there are, there are, is in some sense a finality to, to, Maybe it's just natural objects. Maybe it's also artifacts. I don't. I don't know how that would work. Um, showing my ignorance of all these areas, but I'm thinking like just the broad ideas. I don't know why I would want to just have to create a new name for it. When, if I take the the big ideas from this account and say, look, I think, yeah, a bunch of the machinery under the hood doesn't really function, but the the terminology still makes sense in light of the big ideas. It, in your view, I guess it's just let's name it something else. Um, because when we say Thomism, it brings a bunch of baggage that maybe you don't intend to have. Yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of ambivalent about it. So yeah, if you, if you, if you, if you want to use it and even use the Thomistic language, um, I'm not, I'm not completely against it. I just, again, I don't, I don't think it does well in physics, but as you, as you climb up the hierarchy of the sciences, yeah, possibly it, it, it might be, um, uh, especially when it comes to, to living organisms. So yeah, I'm not trying to forbid the language. Uh, I'm really trying to emphasize again, the, the historical failures here. Yeah. On the, on that note. Um, so I think one of the, one of the natural places like a neo-Aristotelian might think teleology can be rehabilitated is, is just in this notion of causal powers. Uh, and the idea that, um, a power by its nature is ordered towards some, towards some end. Um, you know, if you've got two electrons that repel each other and classical electrodynamics, you know, you, the Coulomb interaction, the, the, the one electron, if the electron has a power to repel like charges, it, it seems like just, just by even the way I have to state that it seems like, uh, that power is ordered towards some particular end. Uh, I'm wondering I mean, in there, you, you wouldn't even necessarily have to say that that would actually that that teleology would have to appear in your physical account itself. It could be the kind of metaphysical story that underlies uh, the, the theory, it, the, the way we describe the change going on in physics. Is that a plausible, I guess, place where you might be able to see teleology or is that just too different from the Thomistic account that, that we should just not even call it that? See, now we're, see, yeah, you're getting down. The question is, what's the most fundamental thing here, right? What's underlying? And this is where I, I think, yeah, um, the Thomistic account I find, and, and just the, even the causal powers account or dispositionalism uh, that, that you were, that you were gesturing towards. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think those are um, uh, what's at the ground floor. It, it, it isn't, it isn't dispositions. It's not causal powers. Mm. It's not essences that account for order in nature. It is the laws of nature. These are, comp these are competing views. You've got three broad views uh, of what accounts for, for order out there. Mm -hmm. um, you have a, what I would call a, 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 a I call it a law centric view here, but the more fancy name might be nomological realism. That ultimately is what accounts for order. 
a, a dispositionalist or a, a causal powers theorist thinks, no, it's not the laws. There's something else. It is these, these things, dispositions, mm-hmm. causal powers or capacities. Um, and then there's a Humean account, which is, again, I, I don't have to go into that right now, but no, I'm, I'm putting my money on, on nomological realism. I, I think it's, um, it's the laws of nature that, that are at the ground floor. They are what accounts for uh, regularity uh, and the uniformity of nature. It's not dispositions. It's not Aristotelian essences. So, so no, you're, you're drilling down. You're suggesting we could drill down to find something in Thomas. And I'm saying, no, you drill down and, and, and things get worse. <laughs> things get worse for Thomas. You got you to go up the hierarchy uh, of the natural sciences before you find a place, in my view, again, for, for uh, Thomistic metaphysics to be, to be useful. Mm-hmm. Now, remind me, I, I've since forgotten, what's, what are the, the main reasons you would say nomological realism is definitely the way to go? Well, one is it's just, it, it's overwhelmingly successful, right? So this is one of the things, if, if we would pull back to, to, to Thomism again, um, one of the things that I, I, I want to ask my, my Thomistic friends is, um, you know, well, two things, you know, how do you, for, for one is why did, why did, why did, um, Thomism have to get pushed aside for natural science to take off. Why do we have to actually, you know, intentionally, you know, get rid of it in order for for the scientific revolution to happen? And then, how do you explain the success of of, of nomological realism, of this law centric approach, for you know around three hundred years now? If you think right that really no, it's not the laws of nature; they're not at the ground floor here. It's that's not what's accounting for for regularity and, and the like. It's something else. It's something more like Thomism. You've got to account for for that success. Why is it that we've had 300 years where, again, it, the, the law-centric view has been so over, overwhelmingly successful? Um, I don't see anyone anyone talking about that. They're just kind of cutting loose the things. Oh, yeah, Thomas was wrong about that. He was wrong about that. He was wrong about that. He was wrong about that. And we'll just cut all that, and then we'll try to rehabilitate it in some way. And and I just, I, I don't I don't understand exactly why why we would want to do that. I think that, that gives one of my, one of my questions was, um, uh, on on the contemporary way, then that we we conceive of the divide between physics and metaphysics, where, where it's maybe a little bit more clear cut. Um, I think I think some of your answer uh, makes me wonder how how do how do we consider or how do we think about the connection then between a physical theory and uh, the metaphysics that that we ultimately want to say underlies it? Uh, is, is there do we have flexibility there? I mean, do theories come equipped already with an ontology or um, yeah. Well, how, how do we how do we want to think about that? Yeah. So I, I think there are two ways where metaphysics is related to science. So first, science relies on a set of metaphysical presuppositions. So things like um, causes always always precede their effects. Um, that's not something you find in, in any given theory. It's something we use to, to judge whether a theory is, is any good or a certain prediction is any good. And there's things like the uh, like I mentioned before, that that uniformity of nature, where the laws are the same everywhere. That that's a that's a metaphy- That's a bit of you know metaphysics in physics itself. It's an, it's an assumption. It's a good assumption. I think it's right. But modern astronomy just would be impossible you know, without that assumption. So that, that's one way metaphysics is involved. You you really need some metaphysics to get science off the ground. Uh, and then there are um, the the metaphysical ramifications. Of science. So, for example, what what sorts of objects exist at the ground floor of, of physical reality? That's that's a question of ontology. You're, you're, it's, a, it's a metaphysical question. Newton thought the answer was particles, what he called corpuscles. 
And today, most physicists would say fields, like, like the electromagnetic field. That seems to be the, the best interpretation of the relevant equations. Um, and then there, as you know, there are all these different you know, interpretations of, of quantum mechanics. In that case, it, it's much less clear what, what the physics is telling us. So this is the kind of thing that philosophers of science think a lot about. But I don't think that, that physics logically entails much about metaphysics. It's really more a matter of which metaphysic is, is the best fit for physics. And I think it's, you know, this is a little bit like theology that way. There are, there are you know, lots of different competing theological views. There are lots of competing metaphysical interpretations in, in the philosophy of science. There aren't a lot of slam dunk arguments out there, right? I mean, you, you can look at the person on the other side and say, yeah, you know, I, I, I see why you hold that view and, and there really is something to it. And, and I've got some problems of my own. That's, that's more what's going on. I think we're trying to you know, figure out what, what, what physics tells us about metaphysics. Now, does the advent of quantum mechanics, does that play any role in this discussion? Does it make anything more or less consistent with Thomism, Aristotelianism, or classical physics in any sense? I have I have friends who think so. So R Rob Coons at, at Texas, he's done a lot of work arguing that, that quantum mechanics fits, fits very nicely with Aristotelianism. And I, I hate poking Rob in the eye when I bring this stuff up, but but it is something that, that we disagree about. So it, it's kind of hard to, to very briefly summarize what they say, but, but here's one argument. So th they'll tell you that, look, classical mechanics, that was based on, on Newton's laws of motion where force was the, the central idea. But when you get to quantum mechanics, now you've got two related approaches. You've got Hamiltonian dynamics and Lagrangian dynamics. And if I try to explain what those are, your listeners are going to switch to another podcast. So let me let me just say that the, the mathematics and the way they work is very different from the Newtonian approach. And, and it does when you go through the details, um, and, and, and Rob does a nice job with this, it, some of it looks teleological. And it does, uh, which, which is, of course, what gets Thomas excited. Uh, whereas classical mechanics did away with final causes and teleology, it looks like quantum mechanics reintroduces them, which I think would be a, a game-changing argument if only it were true. So let me let me give you two reasons why I don't think that's the that's the way to think about this. Um, first, the, these two. Um, unfamiliar bits of, of classical Lagrangian and Hamiltonian mechanics. Um, th those are part of classical mechanics. We've been using those since the 18th century. So when, when quantum mechanics came along, it adopted those approaches. So yeah, they're, they're different from Newtonian physics, but they're not new. Um, it's something that, that quantum mechanics shares with classical mechanics. But the more important thing about pushing back on, on teleology and quantum mechanics, that question, you know, is this is this Lagrangian approach? Is there is there really teleology there? Um, that was solved uh, by Richard Feynman, the physicist Richard Feynman, in the 1960s. So Feynman won his Nobel Prize for his work in quantum mechanics using this Lagrangian approach. And, and he showed that what looks like teleology really is not. Um, instead, it's the underlying processes of quantum mechanics that produce something that, that looks like teleology. So it's, it's a little bit like what Darwin did. So yes, it looks like, it looks like uh, you know, a cat's claws were designed to say catch mice, but really it's just natural selection working on over, over a long period of time that, that, you know, give a cat it, its claws. Once you understand what's going on underneath the phenomena, what you see is that quantum teleology is, it's an illusion. Um, it's, it's really, it's really not there. So anyone who wants to say that quantum mechanics is teleological 
uh, has to show why Feynman was wrong, but I haven't seen anyone talking about that. Matt, I don't know if you have any opinions on why that might be possibly incorrect. This is totally over my head, so I have absolutely <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. nothing. I tried, I tried to avoid no, the, the details. <laughs> it, no, I understand. What, it's just it's not over my head in that sort of sense. It's just like I have no idea how I would explain or possibly provide a counter example to <laughs> Tell us why Feynman's wrong, Jordan. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, well, I, I think one, one question um, – so I know Rob has also, uh, and this connects back to something you, you were talking about earlier, you know, Rob's also argued that when you start thinking about thermodynamics and chemistry and quantum mechanical terms that, you know, you, you start to see uh, some indications of emergence, like in the context of phase transitions and uh, uh, certain thermodynamic and chemical properties. Um, I'm wondering uh, if, if you if you think he's on the right track there. Is that is that a way? I, I mean, uh you, you were talking about how if you want to defend uh, Thomism or Aristotelianism, emergence might be the way to go. Yeah. So I'm, uh, yeah, I do not have a settled view on emergence um, yet. Um, give, me, give me a couple of years and I, I, and I might have one. Uh, it, it's difficult. It's, it's a, it, there's a lot out there on the notion of, of emergence or the notions. There's several uh, mm -hmm. out there. Uh, it's very messy. I hope to try to, to bring some, some order to, to that. Um, uh, for for my sorts of readers, um, but but yeah, I don't have a firm view right now. All I can say is, um, uh, from what I understand of, of you know um, Aristotelian notions of substance, I don't see any any clear conflict uh, you know with with the science uh, that, that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, but you do have to get again up up into that you know thermodynamic level and and higher. Rob himself says you know when, once you go below, once you get down you know below. Uh, large molecules, uh, those aren't substances. So really the, the, the very notion of substance starts coming into play, uh, maybe at the level of something like DNA or the like, uh, but it just doesn't work the farther down you go. That is, again, I just think, I take that as another sign that, yeah, there's, there's kind of a limit um, to, to how far down, you know, how fundamental the notion of, of substance and essence is because, you know, Rob himself said it, does, it doesn't work when you get down to too small, too small scales. Well, yeah, he wants to flip the the order and think of the larger scale substances as what are fundamental, which yeah. is obviously out of step with the way we tend to think about things. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to say, I mean, fundamental. Yeah, that's a loaded word. Um, people, <laughs> Alan Love is a philosopher of biology. He, he's got a joke. Um, uh he refers to, <laughs> I hope I can say this, he refers to a, a, a fundamental uh, or, or working on fundamental problems as the F word. <laughs> so when you hear, when you hear, because speakers come and they, they'll speak at the University of Minnesota at colloquium, anyone who throws around, you know, that I'm working on fundamental issues, really what you're trying to say is I'm doing the important stuff, right? So, so the rest of you can do whatever you want, but I am working on fundamental issues. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, 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 if if the higher level is the more fundamental thing, yeah, I I don't know, uh, I don't I don't really have much to say about that right now. I, I need to I need to figure out more about what I want to say about emergence. Uh, and again, it's just it's really hairy. So here is a question out of left field that I I just started thinking about as we we're discussing this. It seems to me I want to have natures and essences in part because of my theological commitments about things like the incarnation 
and needing to have a way to say that the divine son became incarnate and took on whatever it is to be a human. And if there isn't a definable set of this is what it means to have a human nature, then I seem to have very diff- a very difficult time of understanding how it is that he can save all of humanity. Have you given any thought to that? And if you haven't, that's totally fine. But that's just where my mind starts to go for some of the motivations for me to want to have a strong account of like natures and essences. Yeah, just very general. I mean, I, I would say you want you want a strong understanding of natures and essences. So you understand what they were talking about at the time. But the idea that we should be you know tied into that metaphysics because that was the language and the conceptual scheme they were using. Um, no, I, I just don't. I, that, that seems. I don't see why we would we would we would want to do that. I mean, they. I would say you know they were using they were using the concepts and the, the philosophical tools, the best stuff available at the time. Absolutely, it's just that that was just the best stuff at the time that that, that they had. Um, and today, I just I think those tools have shown to be deficient. So yes, you want to understand what they are. Um, so so again, you can you can translate that, but I would I would not say that we have to be tied into to their metaphysic. Um, I think those those are you know, pretty clearly separable issues. Got it. And I know so your primary role is a professor uh, teaching, but you're also a Christian. And I'm curious. A lot of our listeners are sort of doing some sort of pastoral sort of work. Would you say that pastors should be thinking about philosophy of science? and related topics to enhance their ministry in some respects? Or, or are there other ways to say, you should pay attention to these sort of things to help you as a pastor? You know, as pastors, you have so much to pay attention to. <laughs> I, I have a really hard time, you know, trying to say, yeah, you, look, you got to carve out, you know, an, an hour a week or whatever, doing, doing philosophy of science. Um, I would say there are things along the edges, right? Um, just like, you know, certain, um, you know, Lots of other stuff in philosophy. There are things about the laws of nature. I think just in terms of you know philosophy of science and the history of science for understanding the relation between science and religion, because I think a lot of us have bought into this this warfare conflict. A lot of Christians today have bought into this warfare conflict narrative about science. Uh, but that very narrative, and that was that was foisted on us by by people who did not like religion. It was it was people like like Huxley and, and Spencer uh, at the at the turn of the twentieth century um, that wanted to have this you know real distinction between naturalistic science and then theism. And and drive this wedge to to get so you know if you wanted to if you're if you're emotionally needy and stuff like that well you can you know you can go do the the, the Christian stuff uh, but if you're if you know if you're strong minded and, and empirical and you you like the laws of nature then you come with us um, that that they were the ones who, who drove that wedge but if you go back further if you go back again to Newton um, in the early modern period this this is one of the things that yeah. I, one of the reasons why I like to, to talk about the history uh, in, in my books, uh, I, I think if people realized that um, the, the early modern rejection of Thomism and Aristotelian, this was this was a Christian rejection. These, these guys, these guys were Christians. Um, they they the bring up the very notion of the laws of nature, this, this really invention, innovation of laws of nature is because. They believed in a divine law giver. Uh, that, that's where it comes from. So they would be very confused. Newton would be very confused today by this dichotomy that we we'd often live with, where you know you can explain something in terms of the laws of nature, or you can you know, appeal to God. Uh, and you know if, if you appeal to the laws and explain it that way, then you've kind of like pushed God out. And Newton would say, "Look, 
you can't you can't have laws for the whole of nature without God. It's actually you know it, it's incoherent. So the idea is that, that somehow these are you know contrary to one another. Um, yeah, I, I think that that that's very damaging. So there are some themes. Um, yeah, that I think it would be useful uh, at least from an, an apologetic you know standpoint, if nothing else. Um, can I make a strong case that yeah the you know, pastors should really be delving deeply into the philosophy of science. No, you know, in all honesty, no, I, I can't, I can't make a strong case for that. They got, they got a lot of stuff going on in, yeah. in, in our culture. So, yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. And I don't think there has to be a direct use for everything to the pastoral vocation. But I always like to ask that question because sometimes you can find some interesting things and nuggets. They say that you should spend some time focusing and thinking about this because it'll serve you in some ways. Um, I did hear some pitchforks from the Artomas listeners there uh, <laughs> as, as all of the, the modern period is in all its glory is being presented because they would probably sit there and think, no, that's where everything went wrong. Modernity is evil. Yes, that is, that is exactly what they say. And again, just let's I, I, look, it, it's kind of a slippery slope argument because again, eventually it does lead us to today where science is considered to be, you know, wholly naturalistic and, and God seems to have been pushed out. At least that's, that's, you know, the way, the way we you know, often view science today. Um, so, you know, first of all, I don't think that was inevitable. Um, if you have a, you know, let's take like the counterfactual. Do we know what society would look like? Say if, if um, you know, the notion of the laws of nature had never happened and we never believed in it. So like, you know, Thomism continues to, you know, to just carry forth. Um, do, do we think that today that somehow the, the world would be better and it would be let, less naturalistic? I, I don't see any reason to believe that. Thomism uh, is part of a larger, within, within the, the three major views about laws of nature, Thomism is a type of, of dispositionalism or, or causal powers view. Most philosophers who hold to dispositionalism today are, are not theists. Um, you know, so they're just as secular as anyone else. So I, I don't see that like, Thomism would have, would have rescued, you know, Western society from the from the evils uh, of the early modern turn. And the other thing is that, the, at least in the earliest part of the early modern era, again, these these were these were Christian notions, uh, the, the notions of the, lo- the laws of nature and thinking God's thoughts after Him. So I, I would like to recapture that. I'd like to re- rehabilitate the, the early modern era. Um, and so, you know, the idea that yeah, it, it did go wrong, sure, but you know, there's no there's no guarantee that that you know. Whatever had happened at the time wouldn't wouldn't go badly, wouldn't become more secular by the time you get to the 21st century. Well, Jeff, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. So everybody who's been listening, what I need you to do, I'll link to his books in the show notes so you can go get a copy of them. Uh, he's done books on laws of nature, on, on physics and theism that I think are both very helpful, especially just for sort of laying out the land, sort of mapping the territory. I always find books that do that really well to be invaluable. And I think Jeff's book on the laws of nature is exceptionally helpful in that area to give me sort of, here are the options on the table for me that I can pick from. And it gives me this sort of mental map of the terrain that really helps me understand where I find useful, what what the things that I find that are are problematic and the direction I want to go. So I I really recommend checking out his books because you don't have to agree with anything to find those sort of books really, really useful because they can just sort of give you that map. So again, Jeff is awesome. Go follow him. Go read his books. Uh, and everybody's been tuning in. Thanks for listening to the only analytic Baptist and professional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.